Well, good evening. I do give honor to our God who is the one supremely worthy of all praise, all honor, and all glory. And I magnify Him once again as we give Him glory for His goodness to us. It's a privilege of being together this evening and looking to His written and read word. I, I want to invite you to turn with me this evening to Psalm 24. We uh, focus particularly this morning in the messages from John on the death of the Lord Jesus. We did not leave unnoticed His resurrection, but at the same time our primary focus was on the, on the death of Christ. And as we uh, come tonight to Psalm 24, I want us to think about a prophetic picture that we have of the Lord Jesus. It's given in terms of what uh, appears to have been written in this psalm at the time of uh, David transferring the ark from where it had been in the home of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem, which he had captured from the Jebusites. The details of it are found in 2 Samuel 5 and 6, but also in uh, the words of 1 Chronicles 13 through 16. We see some of the background historically to it. The psalm, as we find it in our scriptures, in the inscription, is written as a psalm of David. So it makes sense that David could have written these words against that background. And in the light of what it says, we as well understand that David, (coughs) being aware of God's uh, promise to him, the covenant that God made, and the light of that, and as well the covenant that God made with Abraham of blessing for the nations, that David anticipates the coming of the one to whom the Ark of the Covenant pointed. I will say more about that. That's just introduction right now. I have a preacher friend out in Smyrna. Whenever we're together ministering at a conference, he'll always say that his introduction does not account against his time of preaching. <laughs> he'll have a long introduction and then say that. But I, I, I will count it against my preaching time, but I do want to just say that by way of anticipation of what we'll see as we look at Psalm 24. Some of you will recognize as we read it that those last verses that make up this psalm are verses that are associated with the Lord Jesus Christ in His victory, in His ascension, and in His return. And uh, we'll be thinking of them along those lines, but we'd like to do that against the background of the opening verses. So let's read together this psalm. Again, the inscription reads, A Psalm of David. And then in Psalm 24, 1 we read, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. 
Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. We trust again our God will add His blessing tonight to this His written and read word, His inspired and preserved word of truth. May we just together again pause before Him in prayer. Father, we do bow our heads and unite our hearts in that worthy name that is above every name. That name in which we gladly bow by Thy sovereign grace. That name, Father, that You adore. The name of the one whom You love and who loved You as we read this morning in His words of, uh, to His disciples there in John 14. Father, we ask You in the name of Thy Son that You would grant now Thy blessing to this portion that we've read as we consider it together think of what You have given to us in it from the pen of David. We pray that you might indeed show to us your son in anticipation of what we celebrate of his resurrection. Uh, Father, his death for us as well. We, uh, As people who are grateful to thee, we celebrate that because we know that he died for us in accord with your will and purpose that as the lamb slain, Father, our sins could be taken away. Father, as he had done that, you gave him victory in resurrection and in ascension glory. And Father, we thank you that you'll come one day in second coming glory. Father, we pray that as we think about this psalm, you might give us thoughts of that, that we might see your son somewhat in a clearer light. In his worthy name we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at these words of Psalm 24, I'd like to give you by way of a title, Christus Victor. Christus Victor. Now, that may not readily ring a bell, but if you translate it rather easily into English from Latin, it's Christ the victor, not too hard. And that's what we have really, I think, a celebration of here in these words of Psalm 24. If I were to give you another title, I might choose the words of Brother Samuel Stinnett in the hymn that's still sung among the Lord's people, Majestic Sweetness. He said in that hymn, Majestic Sweetness sits enthroned upon the Savior's brow, his head with radiant glories crowned, his lips with grace o'erflow. For I believe as we read the words of Psalm 24, that's what David is seeing. He is seen prophetically. He is seen by inspiration of the Spirit of God. He's seen our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the question would become, how so? Uh, in what way can we develop that? And I'll ask you to consider with me the, the reality of what the background of this psalm is. It appears from David's own history that we've already made reference to. But I'd also like to ask you to think with me about something that characterizes the Old Testament in measure from Genesis to Malachi. Uh, years ago, I heard one of the best two-word summaries I've ever heard of the Old Testament. It was simply this, someone's coming. Someone's coming. And so often when we read the Old Testament, we fail to remember that. When we read about the sacrifices, or about the tabernacle, or about the priesthood, we read those details in the, la- in the labor that they sometimes require of us to read them, and we think, oh my, what is all this about? And we fail to remember that simple summary of the Old Testament. Someone's coming. 
There'll be the sacrifice that answers all those sacrifices. There'll be the priest that answers all that the priesthood was spoken of by way of command and detail. There would be as well that one who would embody the fullness of the tabernacle for he is Emmanuel, God with us. And in these things, we really aren't too far from what our Lord Jesus made clear in Luke 24. Before we go to Psalm 24, let me ask you to look at Luke 24 for just a a moment with me. We mentioned this morning the Emmaus Road experience of those two who met our Lord in their travels that evening of the resurrection. And uh, as they were saddened, our Lord asked them, he was unknown to them at that moment our Lord asked them why were they sad and they they passed on to him uh, they were concerned because Jesus of Nazareth had been put to death and they trusted that it was he who would redeem Israel and as they told about some of the resurrection appearances they'd heard reports of women seen a vision of angels uh, they were still marked by unbelief and our Lord speaks to them in Luke 24 if you would notice what he says in verse 25 and the verses that follow. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ, remember Christ is but the Greek translation of Messiah, ought not Christ, Messiah, to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So that's how he spoke to them on the road to Emmaus. As they were marked by a spirit of unbelief about the reports of the resurrection, he reminded them of the character of the Old Testament, the forward look, the anticipation of the Old Testament. Someone's coming. And then he kind of unpacked some of it for them. It's a seven-mile walk, they say, from uh, Jerusalem to Emmaus. Uh, Seven miles, you know, I don't know at what leisurely pace they would have been walking, but I guess they could have had at least a couple hours, maybe more, to, to hear the words of the Lord Jesus as he expounded them the Scriptures. Well, later on when he met all the disciples, when those two got to Emmaus and Jesus was made known to them in the breaking of bread and then he removed from their presence, they got back to Jerusalem. I think they moved faster than when they walked to Emmaus. And they said, the Lord's risen and others were given reports. The Lord's risen indeed and it appeared to Simon. And Jesus appears in the midst. And to overcome the unbelief that sadly still marked them, he asked them, do you have any meat? You got anything to eat? And he ate in front of them. They had a broiled fish and honeycomb. Terry would like the fact that it was broiled. I would have preferred, I guess, if it had been fried, but that's my southern background. But broiled, and he ate in front of them. And what was that confirming? This is a body you see me have. And I'm not just a spirit, no. I know some say he rose a mighty spirit being. Don't believe that. He arose a mighty being in a glorified body, hallelujah, alive. And as he spoke to them, we read this. If you will drop down with me in Luke 24. Let me just read verse 43 since we mentioned that broiled fish and honeycomb. Verse 43, and then notice especially verse 44. And he took it. 
and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things which must all, all things, excuse me, must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved, that is, it was fitting that Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. In other words, the Lord Jesus is pointing out that this is the whole tenor of the law, and the prophets and the Psalms. Now, we divide the Bible in our English order of books in a fourfold way. The law, the historical books, the poetic books, and the prophetic books. But the Jews divided the scriptures, same books in terms of what they called the Tanakh. The Torah, the law, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Kethuvim, the writings, which would be the one represented by the Psalms. You've got the law, the prophets, then in the Psalms, representing the whole of the Scripture. And Christ says it was written concerning what happened to him, had to be fulfilled. In other words, our Lord confirms that two-word synopsis of the Old Testament. Someone's coming. Because he says, in effect, the word pointed forward to me. And that's one of the beauties of Scripture. If you read this book rightly, the Old as well as the New Testament Scriptures, it will point you to Christ. And brothers and sisters, Christ will point you back to the Scriptures. And that is something that we can appreciate concerning our Lord. Now, in that regard, with that said, I want us to keep that in mind as we look at Psalm 24. Again, the background is the Ark of the Covenant had been for some time at the house of of uh, his name fails me right now, and it shouldn't. But the the threshing floor there. Well, never mind. It was removed. David tried to move it. Some of you remember. Let me just give you a little history background here. The Philistines, remember, had gone to battle against the Israelites, and the Israelites had gotten beaten. If we were talking in southern parlance, they just flat got whooped. And they said, it's because we don't have the Ark of the Covenant with us. Send for the Ark of the Covenant. Well, they weren't doing that in real devotion or fear of the Lord. They were treating it more like a lucky rabbit's foot. And so Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's two wicked sons, bring the Ark. And when the Hebrews see see the Ark come in, they shout. And the Philistines get scared. They said, hey, this is the same God smote those Egyptians. They say in the wilderness they were mistaken, but that's what they say. And, and so they say, you better fight her like the devil, men. Now, that's just not in the Bible. It's, you know, that's kind of the Marsh paraphrase. You better fight like you everything with everything you've got because otherwise you're going to be slaves to the Hebrews like they've been slaves to you. And they go out and they whoop the Israelites even more. But not only that, the ark of God's taken. Some of you remember the Philistines put the Ark of God in the Temple of Dagon. I love the story. The priests come back the next morning. The Dagon's fallen before the Ark. Because any temple you put our God in, He's going to make it His own. And that's what happened. Well, the Philistines wised up after a while because Dagon, their God, got cut to pieces the next day. And then they got smoked with hemorrhoids. Somebody told me one time God had a sense of humor. He smoked those 
Philistines with hemorrhoids. I said it probably wasn't funny to the to the Philistines, though. Uh, yeah, you know that's just so. But but anyway, they said we got to get rid of this Ark of the Lord. They moved it from city to city. Finally, they sent it back, and it wound up getting there in in Beth Shan, and they they killed the oxen, and they sent it on, and burnt the wagon to make a burnt offering to the Lord. Well, when they removed it from there, I think it was Nahan's fleshing threshing floor, not fleshing floor, <laughs> threshing floor, and and when they removed it, David sadly did the same thing the Philistines had done, and God didn't punish their ignorance but David shouldn't have been ignorant he put the ark on a cart drawn by oxen and when they stumbled Uzzah who was one of the Levites he reached forth his hand to steady the the cart but you see God doesn't need our help like that he'd already looked after his ark pretty good down there in Philistine country and God smote Uzzah and David called a halt to the whole parade and then David learned, and First Chronicles particularly records this, which emphasizes the office of the priest. First Chronicles records how David said, none ought to bear the ark but the Levites, and they ought to bear it on their shoulders. You see, what God overlooked among the Philistines, God didn't overlook among his people. They should have been better informed because of what Scripture said. And so that's how they moved it. When David heard that where the ark had stopped, the house of Obed-Edom was being blessed... He moved it, but he, he moved it only after he had conquered the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And he had set up a tent in which to house the ark. Uh, he had conquered the city, and now he's relocated it to the city which he's made his capital. He ruled seven and a half years in Hebron, farther south in Judah. Now he's going to make Jerusalem, which is more central to all of Israel. He's going to make that the capital. But he's also going to make it the center for God's worship. And as he does that, he has the ark brought. Now, that ark was what? It wasn't a statue of the Lord. Because the Lord doesn't have any statues himself. He told the Israelites plainly, You saw no similitude when I revealed myself to Moses. No likeness, so make no likeness. The ark was really just a box. And in that box was placed the, the law of God. It was made of two things. It was made of shittim or acacia wood and gold. And if you think about that, Gold is the most enduring of substances. We say that at weddings when rings are exchanged, you know. Wood's not as durable. Wood represents well humanity. Gold represents God pretty well among human items. If you put wood and gold together, humanity and deity, does that sound like someone we know? Now, they're not mixed up, no. They're separate. Deity and humanity are not confused. They're joined together, though, in perfect union in the person of the Lord Jesus, who, by the way, would come as great David's greater son. For the angel said, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Unto you is born where? This day in the city of David. Why? Because he was the one to whom God made covenant that he would send his son through the line of David. And so that ark really looked ahead. Now, let me make this statement too. That ark had that someone's coming feel about it. But that ark also had over it 
a lid. Wasn't really anything ornate. Well, it, I'm sorry it was in one sense because out of the sides of the lid there were two cherubim. But all it was by nature was a lid. The only thing was in the Hebrew it's called the kaparith. We translate it mercy seat in English because what happened once a year? The blood of atonement was sprinkled there. And it was called in Greek a hilasterion. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul uses that word to speak about our Lord Jesus Christ and say of Him whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. Hilasterion. A place of propitiation. A place of atonement. Now I realize some people don't like the word atonement. They say it's Old Testament. I don't know. Because atonement means what? Break it down. At one meant. And that's what God has done in Jesus Christ for sinners. He's made us at one with Himself and reconciled us through the blood of His Son. So that ark really was a representation of the person of the Lord Jesus, but also His work. And so, as that ark's approaching, and it also was the place over which God's glory presence rested in the tabernacle. So we have, if you will, this ark is the symbol of the presence of God. We have this ark that representatively speaks of the humanity and deity of the Lord Jesus. We have it as a place which was the propitiatory. That is the place where the atoning blood was sprinkled, which Christ is as our propitiation. Now in all of those things, brothers and sisters, we have a forward look from the Old Testament that again says to us, someone's coming. Now, I don't know how much of that David saw. I'm convinced he saw more than we recognize him to have seen. So as that ark approached, this psalm, it seems, would have been sung or even written after, maybe. But in any event, this psalm celebrates God's kingship, God's sovereignty and lordship, and also what God requires of sinners and how he fulfills that. Let's look at it, please. I've given you a long introduction, but I remind you what my friend says. Introduction doesn't count against my time. Let's look at it together. Notice, if you will, first of all, please, verses 1 and 2. And by, by the way, as we look at verses 1 through 6, I want you to think with me about the requirement of righteousness. The requirement of righteousness. And we see it stated, first of all, in terms of this Psalm of David, as Speaking of God's domain, verses 1 and 2. Notice the very clear statement of God's ownership and rule. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. These words declare clearly God's ownership of the whole earth. And we could say, we could extend that if we wanted to, God's ownership of everything. The earth is the Lord's. The earth belongs to, and notice in our Bibles, it's all capital letters, Lord. That's the covenantal name of God that He revealed at the burning bush to Moses. The I Am name. The earth belongs to Jehovah or Yahweh or I Am. Not to any other God. Not to any other deity. Not to any other false claimant. It belongs to Him. He's the one to whom all belongs. Everything. It makes that clear by saying that the earth is the Lord's and what else? The fullness thereof. 
everything in it, if you will, and I think we could add everything beyond it. Because you see, you wouldn't really have an earth without a sun, would you? Not as far as life goes. Everything about the cosmos belongs to Him. The world it adds and they that dwell therein. That is every dweller upon the earth. Human and animal, but particularly I think human is in view here. Now Paul uses these words, brothers and sisters. I just point out to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when Paul is discussing with the Corinthians the matter of being offered to idols and our Christian liberty. And as he talks about this matter of uh, whether the believers at Corinth should eat meat that had been offered to idols and then was sold in the meat market, he gives an answer that builds around this scripture. In the words of, in the words of 1 Corinthians 10, notice with me please, verse 25. 1 Corinthians 10, 25 and following. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that's the word for the meat market, that eat, asking no questions for conscience sake. In other words, he's telling believers, if you go to the meat market and you have a piece of meat there you want to buy, don't ask them, was this offered to an idol? Just buy it and go home and enjoy it. Why? Notice the reason, verse 26. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, everything in the world belongs to God. It's all His. And that meat is His. So go home and enjoy it, child of God. I like that when it comes to pork chops now, but other things too. But anyway, it, it all belongs to Him. And in this age, we're not, it seems, bound by the restrictions God gave to Israel. So we can eat shellfish. Amen. Why, the earth is the Lord's. But notice what the apostle goes on to say in the words there, verse 27. If any of them that believe not bid you do a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. If an unbeliever were to invite one of the Corinthian believers to a meal, and they were to sit down, whatever was there, he eat it. Enjoy it. Have it. But notice what it says, verse 28. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it and for conscience sake. Why? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, if this man makes a point of saying this was offered to idols, if you eat it, in his mind, he's going to think you're denying the reality that everything is the Lord's. Because he's kind of tagging it with that idol's presence or name. Now notice what Paul is doing here by inspiration. He's using that scripture that God has absolute ownership of everything to say, child of God, you can enjoy this world in the right way. You can enjoy what God has made in this world in the right way. But brothers and sisters, the key is we've always got to remember, it's not mine. It's His. I'm just a steward. I've just got, may I say it at best, temporary ownership. And so I've got to hold it with a loose hand, realizing it belongs to Him. Now, what Paul does with that, I think, is really masterful. Of course, the Holy Spirit gave it to him. But really, it speaks about our Christian liberty and freedom to enjoy what God's given us in this world as long as I bear in mind in a right way 
that it all belongs to Him. Now that's how this psalm begins. Going back to Psalm 24, it begins with this statement of God's domain. All the earth belongs to Him. Why? Verse 1. Verse 2 answers it. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. And what this is speaking about is God, because He has creator rights, has ownership rights. That's something folk don't want to realize. That's one reason I believe people love evolution because it makes God farther removed from them in their thinking as far as having any claim over us. Because if we just evolved, as one brother called it, from goo to you by way of the zoo, if that's what it is, then, well, there's no one to be accountable to. That's why evolution is so appealing. And by the way, evolution didn't grow out of science. Evolution grew out of philosophy. A philosophy that denies God. Brothers and sisters, the Bible makes it clear, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And because he made it, he has rights to it, ownership over it. It all belongs to him. Now, in some measure, just quickly by way of illustration, parents sometimes do this, you know. I remember my dear friend, Brother Ward, black preacher whom I mentioned, he would sometimes talk about how his good mammy would discipline him. He said one time she told him, I'll stomp a mud hole in you and walk it dry. (laughs) Now that's heavy discipline, y'all. But you know, many a parent has said, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out. Well, parents' rights don't extend quite that far, but the idea that that parent is the source of life for that child gives them an authority that nobody else on earth possesses toward that child. And brothers and sisters, exponentially, in a far greater way, God has that kind of authority. Exponentially, again, in a far greater way. Why? Because He made everything that is, and it is His. Now, in the light of His domain in verses 1 and 2, notice God's demand in verses 3 and 4. Because God made everything that is, God has the right to tell us how we ought to act. And so the psalmist asks, and remember the background. What is the ark doing? The ark is going up to Jerusalem, to the hill of the Lord. The place that David set apart for it. And David and the psalmist, as those who are involved in the worship of the Lord here, are, are saying in their psalm, Who shall ascend? Who shall go up into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? And here's the answer. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Remember overall, looking at verses 1 through 6, we said we have God's requirement, righteousness. And what is that requirement? Well, when the question's asked, who has the right to go up to the hill of the Lord? Who has the right to stand in God's holy place? The answer that is given is basically one that says, Only one who is fully pure in action and in attitude. Only one who is marked by such a degree of of righteousness, such a degree of, of purity, that he has no charge of sin against him. He's got clean hands, but he's also got a pure heart. 
He's not lifted up his soul to vanity. That is to the empty things of this world. Now brothers and sisters, against that demand of God, I must tell you, I fall woefully, woefully, woefully short. And I would say that you do too. In fact, I would go so far as to say every son and daughter of Adam by ordinary generation, by ordinary birth, doesn't measure up. But there was one coming that God had promised to David. He had promised to Abraham as well. In fact, He even promised it to our first parents when He talked about the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Interestingly, He's called the seed of the woman. And I think we've observed before, biologically and biblically, the seed doesn't come from the woman. But in this case, this is a supernatural birth. This is the birth of one who's going to come who is marked by an origin that is almost like Adam's. Adam was made from the dust and this one's made not from the, from the normal way of birth. This one's made by God's own miraculous power. That's why it's called wonderful in Isaiah 9-6 when Isaiah wrote after announcing the virgin birth in Isaiah 7-14 he said, For unto us a child is born and his name shall be called wonderful. Pele in Hebrew. Extraordinary. Unusual. Miraculous. Supernatural. And brothers and sisters, as the ark approaches, David, I believe, in mind of what that ark represents with that gold and wood and that propitiatory cover on top in which the cherubim guard and look down upon almost like the throne of God, David draws near and he realizes God's demand is for absolute holiness. David, do you meet that demand? No, I don't. In fact, he had to cry out, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What did he cry that out against? The anticipation of an offering for a sin that the law made no sacrifice for. He was looking ahead to great David's greater son, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, as we see that demand, again, the admission of my heart is, Lord, I don't measure up. Now, there is one sense in which that being true, it's like the old Dodge commercial. I don't know if y'all remember the sheriff who was always pulling that guy and the charger or the challenger over. He'd walk up to the car and say, you're in a heap of trouble, boy. (laughs) Well, every one of us is in a heap of trouble because we've not measured up to God's standard. That makes the declaration that follows in verses 5 and 6 to me even more amazing. For David says, He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. David expresses by God's own inspired word, David expresses it, the one who possesses what verse 4 talks about. He not only has the right to go up to ascend the hill of the Lord and to dwell in his holy place, but he also will receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He'll receive that which sinners need. 
and brothers and sisters in line with what God promised in the scriptures in that promise of the seed of the woman the seed of Abraham and the seed of David God was going to give that one to whom he could give blessing salvation righteousness for sinners now that's not so amazing for if he satisfies God's demands he has the right to receive that and we read the Gospels and we see one who again and again in the words of the Gospel writers at every point he satisfies God's demand. He satisfies God's law. He satisfies what was anticipated for that coming man of righteousness, that man of blessing and promise. But what, what is amazing to me is the words of verse 6 that are joined with it in the declaration. For it says, as David draws near with the group that would have been bringing the ark up, this is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. It's as though David looks at that worshiping crowd that's with him, bringing up the ark. And remember, it had gotten kind of... I don't know how to describe it. I want to say wild, but I shouldn't use that of a worship service. But y'all remember David danced. Now I don't think we Baptists dance too much. You know, dancing is wrong, you know. But 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 this was the right kind of dancing because David was dancing before the Lord. His heart was overjoyed with gratitude for God for what God had done for him and what God had done for Israel. And as those people went before the, with the, the, the ark with, with David there, they were celebrating too. They were rejoicing. I'm sure hands were raised and, and maybe they were joining in the dance. Now there was one who wasn't too happy. Michael, you remember. Saul's daughter, David's wife. Of course, God dealt with that, it appears. But... It's as though David looks at that one who will receive the blessing and he sees beyond the one, the many. He sees the one who has the right to approach, to ascend the hill of the Lord, to dwell in his holy place, who will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He'll receive that. But here's the thing. Because he himself has answered God's demand, he gives that righteousness to all who look to Him. He gives that righteousness to a generation. By the way, that generation is mentioned earlier in Psalm 22. If you will, look with me at the words that close Psalm 22, which is a psalm of the cross. I remind you, Psalm 22 begins with the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then Psalm 22 gives us a picture of the cross of our Lord Jesus. And as it comes to an end, let me just ask you to notice verse 29 as well, but we'll read verses 30 and 31 in line in conjunction with verse 6 of Psalm 24. Again, Psalm 22, verse 29. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before Him. And none can keep alive his own soul a seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. Some would read those last words, that he hath done this, that it is finished. You read those words before? 
In other words, brothers and sisters, out of the work of Messiah that David speaks of in Psalm 22, there's going to be a generation. There's going to be a seed that shall serve him. Those who are part of that seed of the woman, part of that seed of the woman that's one and yet many because we're encompassed in him and because of that we become the generation of them that seek him the generation that he bought by blood and it's significant there's many connections I think we could make but it's significant to me that when you have a human birth two elements are usually seen in the form of fluid blood and water And when our Lord Jesus died and they pierced his side, you know what poured forth? Blood and water. Why? Well, because you see our first birth was a birth of flesh and that which is born of flesh is flesh. It didn't qualify us for God's glory. But when the darling Son of God gave himself up in death for us, By His death, He gave us life. And His death pains became our birth pains. And you and I, by God's sovereign grace, are born again because of blood and water that poured forth. And just like Adam got his bride from his rib, his side, the Lord Jesus Christ purchased His bride from His side, His rib. And brothers and sisters, you and I have been born again because of the grace of God and the gospel. And we have become, by His grace, a generation that seek Him. If you'll notice again the words of Psalm 24, verse 6, this is the generation of them that seek Him. And then it adds, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Now, the critical scholars want to say that we've got an error there. It's O God of Jacob. Now, the God of Jacob is mentioned many times in uh, the book of Psalms. I have a count in one of my Bibles, but I didn't get that. But I think here it's O Jacob specifically for a reason. I think it does mean the one who's the God of Jacob, but it said O Jacob in order to ratchet it up. Well, who's Jacob? Well, we talked a little bit about him this morning when Esau sold his birthright. Jacob's name, Yaakov in Hebrew, means he will take by the heel. He'll supplant, he'll trip up, he'll trick, he'll cheat. Jacob lived up to that name. Somebody said about him, he practiced the five points of connivism. <laughs> Some of you will get that. But I like that though. That Jacob, he was, he, he, was, he was a doll, I'll tell you that. And yet, and this is the grace of God, brothers and sisters. When God identified himself as Blaise Pascal, the geometrician and mathematician of France, who was a believer, said, it was written in his, pinned to his, in written words on, and inside his pocket, they found on his body at his death. He does not say, I'm the God of the philosophers and the scientists, but I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I wouldn't call myself by their names if I was God, but I'm not God. Aren't you glad he calls himself by the names of his people? 
and that the names of people like Jacob whom he deigns to save even though they deserve nothing but judgment. And what he does is he takes Jacob's and makes Israel's out of them. He has the power to change the names of sinners, thank God. Because of that, brothers and sisters, he is able through the work that his son has accomplished, the one to whom this ark pointed, the one who at Calvary poured forth blood and water to give birth to a new generation, not of Adam, but of Christ, the last Adam, the second man, the Lord from heaven. A new birth so that that which was born of spirit could be spirit. He who's done this work, brothers and sisters, he's the one who changes our name. And that's why Paul can say, in a different way, therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Your name's no longer Jacob, the man that wrestled with him, who was God himself. Your name's no longer Jacob, but Israel. Jacob had to admit he was Jacob, and as soon as he said Jacob, nope, Israel now. Why? Because he's the God who changes the name of sinners. And David, as he goes with the ark, realizes that the grace of God and the gospel of Christ is going to change sinners so that their lives now are radically reoriented. They become those who seek Him, that seek His face. And that, brothers and sisters, is what grace does. It teaches us we're no longer on the throne. We never were. We just fooled ourselves into thinking we were. Or whatever we had by way of an ideology or whatever. Whatever we put on the throne, God showed us that wasn't on the throne. And our lives are now radically reoriented to see He's on the throne and we seek His face. By the way, that's what that ark pointed to as well, the throne of God. Remember the cherubim I said came out. It was more ornate than I mentioned because the cherubim came out out of that lid. And those cherubim were the special anointed angelic being that watched over the throne of God. And here we have them what are they? Their faces are down toward that ark. I like the way the hymn writer put it in that hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Speaking about our Lord, Crown Him the Lord of love, Behold His hands inside, Rich wounds yet visible above, In beauty glorified. And then he wrote, No angel in the sky Can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his wandering eye at mysteries so bright. And brothers and sisters, that's the direction of those angels. Their faces toward one another, but facing down toward the mercy seat. Looking at the mysteries, gazing upon them, and thinking in terms of what God has done to save sinners and to bring out of Adam's race, fallen, depraved, deserving damnation, to bring out of Adam's fallen race a generation that seeks Him. Now, I've gone through that, verses 1 through 6. That leads us to, if you will, the the recognition or the reception. As the ark approaches, these words, if you will, preface the approach of the ark. But then there comes the, the address, as it were. As the ark approaches, they address the city. 
for any genuine capitals got to have walls in that day, right? Got to have gates and bars. And so as they approach with the Ark of the Covenant, that remember, says someone's coming. As they approach, the cry goes forth, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors. And what will happen? The King of glory shall come in. And the answer is given. And I don't know a lot about singing, but they say it's antiphonal, you know. Somebody will sing it kind of like a round, and then somebody will answer. And that may have been what the Levite choristers were doing that David had set in order for the worship of Jehovah in the place that he had ordained or appointed there in Jerusalem. And the answer comes back, Who is this King of glory? And then the answer responds, The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. And then the statement's given again. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. And again the question's asked, Who is this King of glory? And the answer's given, The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Now, as Israel worshipped in days past, That's the setting we understand this psalm to be marked by. But if we could fast forward from David's day, 900 to 1,000 years, the Son of God has died. He has shed His blood. The One who is both God and man joined in perfect union. He has died. He has shed His blood. Having done that, He's been raised from the dead. And He's alive now in a glorified bodily state. And he'll have that body for all eternity as the God-man, as the one who was God manifest in the flesh. He talks with his disciples, sojourns among them for 40 days, brothers and sisters. He, he eats with them even again. You know, takes salt with them, the idea of one Greek word that's used in Acts 1, it appears. Takes salt with them. I like that because I love my salt. I've told you that before, I believe. And then what happens? He takes them out toward the Mount of Olives and while his feet stand on the Mount of Olives, he begins to ascend bodily back into heaven. You know those disciples, they're looking up, watching as he's going in and what happens? Two men appear and say, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing? This same Jesus whom ye see taken up from you shall return in like manner as you've seen him go. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad he's coming back? And brothers and sisters, I cannot help but think that as he entered, those angels went back and had some holy duty to fulfill. And they rose as they as they went, went into God's glory and they said, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory will come in. And the cry was given, Who is this King of glory? And the answer responded, the Lord of hosts, strong and mighty in battle. He is the King of glory. The Lord of hosts, who is He? Jehovah Jesus. What has He done? He's conquered. He's triumphed. He's the victor in the battle for the souls of men. And He shed His blood, and by that blood He is redeemed out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and people. A multitude that no man can number who will stand before Him and say, Thou art worthy, for Thou hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood. Brothers and sisters, I can't help but believe that song's going to get court currency again when he returns to earth and he enters Jerusalem once again. 
And as he enters in that glory, the words will be addressed to the gates, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come in. And after that fresh battle of Armageddon, that question will be given, Who is this King of glory? And the answer will be returned, The Lord of hosts, the Lord strong and mighty in battle. You can fill out the rest of the picture from other elements in the Psalms. Psalm 110, the victorious king priest. There's so many other things we could have said, but we'd have been here four or five hours. I wouldn't have minded it, but you may have. (laughs) But brothers and sisters, we see here Christus Victor. Christ the Victor. May we remember, brothers and sisters, may we remember He is triumphed. The old Moravians had a statement in Latin that they used to repeat among themselves. It's this, Agnus Nocher, excuse me, Agnus Noster Vicet, Sequeamor. That means in English, our lamb is conquered. Let us follow him. It's drawn against the background of Revelation 5, a scene in heaven when a man sees, John sees a book in the right hand of him who sits on the throne and no man's found worthy to open the book or loose the seals. But then as he weeps over that reality, he's told, stop your crying. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed, has conquered to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And when he turns, he sees a lamb as it had been slain. Our lamb is conquered. Well, I had more to share with you. I had a hymn from Isaac Watts I wanted to share and another more recent one that talks about our conquering king. Brothers and sisters, you've been most kind to indulge me, so I'm not going to share that. I'm not going to sing it for sure. (laughs) We'd have a premature exit. But I know our Lord Jesus Christ is the victorious Savior. And may God give me grace this week. And you as well, my brother and sister. May God give me grace to remember who the victor is. In the midst of all the ups and downs, the vicissitudes and trials of this life, may I not lose sight that at the right hand of God the Father, there is the one who sits in the glory. The man wrapped in our flesh glorified, sin apart, the man Christ Jesus, the all-glorious Savior. And may I keep my eyes on Him in the midst of all life's struggles. What happens with me is I do like Peter. I get my eyes off Him and I start to sink. I need to keep my eyes. He's one. He's victor. He's Lord. He's ascended. May we remember that. And if you like Handel, you can find these words of Psalm 24, 7 through 10 uh, in his Messiah. I'd recommend it. It'll get you happy if you listen long enough. And if you know a little bit about where he's getting it from, that'll make you happy too. These words have been recognized as being words that speak of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I would say amen, rightly so.